0: Mark ten, forty six, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me there in Mark chapter 10. Uh, And
1: uh, as we continue our sermon series in the gospel of Mark on the road with Jesus, and our road is reaching its destination, and we'll see the gospel playing out over the coming weeks Uh, here in these final chapters of the Gospel of Mark. One of the things that is uh, important for us to see in this passage is uh, a bit of its context, all right? and a couple of of the particular details. This week, we meet the first person healed by Jesus that is actually named for us in the account in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, His name is Bartimaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. That's actually what his name means, Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus. We have actually met many people on this road to Jericho that uh, Jesus is walking along, he's leading the way, and the crowd that's with him are amazed and afraid, knowing what awaits Jesus. We've met many people along the way. My prayer this morning is that this blind beggar, Bartimaeus would help us see Jesus more clearly this morning than we ever have before. That's going to require God to work in our midst. So let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, I pray that you would work in us to Uh, give us an awareness of of who we are, where we stand before you, what our needs are in this world, and, and that they would be rightly oriented to a cry for mercy before our Master. Lord, I pray that we would see, we would hear, we would submit, we would understand, and that you would give us the faith that is needed to take hold of what you have to teach us this morning and therefore walk in it. As we see in this passage, to walk in it is to follow after you. Thank you, Lord. We trust you in advance for your work in the midst of your church. This morning, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, you've heard me use this phrase. I think it's kind of a funny phrase. We'll use it again this morning. Marcon sandwich. All right. This morning we have, again, a Mark on Sandwich in which Jesus is giving sight to the blind in two different passages. You see, in Mark, we have been introduced many times to this idea of a Mark on Sandwich, where there's a story that Jesus is telling, a teaching that he has for the people. And Mark, the way that he records it, is he sets the teaching in between two seemingly unrelated events, Uh, events that themselves are related to one another, but what's in the middle, you're like, why, why did he insert this story in between similar events? There's a connection between the outer and the inner accounts, though, if we look more closely, that actually augments and brings us greater understanding of the meat that is in the middle of the sandwich. This morning, we are going to encounter here at the end of chapter 10, the second slice of bread in this Mark on sandwich, so to speak, Uh, this multi-chapter Mark on sandwich that actually began all the way back at the end of Mark chapter 8. This section of scripture from the end of Mark chapter 8 to the end of Mark chapter 10 moves from uh, Jesus's Movement. his setting his eyes, his sights on Jerusalem, all the way to the, the town right before he enters. And that, that whole section of Scripture is framed by the miraculous healing of two blind men. This middle section of Scripture, the, the meat, so to speak, has been Jesus revealing himself to the disciples on the road to Jerusalem. The Father has called the disciples to listen to him along that road. And yet, over and over again, they've repeatedly stumbled. They've failed to understand. They've even used their relationship with Jesus as an opportunity to grasp for power. Peter, at the very launch of this whole section, confesses the Christ and then immediately rebukes Jesus. Jesus. Just last week, we saw where where the disciples, they know who Jesus is. They're following after him. They're amazed and afraid. And then they grasp for power, and they want to sit on his right and his left, over and above others. And then, in this section of Scripture, it turns out that it's the least, the most unexpected of persons, the father of a demon-possessed boy the littlest of children, and now another blind man who sees and believes, who knows Jesus and follows after him. From, from Mark chapter 8 through Mark chapter 10, the disciples, the scribes, the Pharisees can be easily contrasted with these two blind men, and particularly this man, Bartimaeus. It turns out that it's they who see Jesus, much like the blind man in Mark chapter 8, the disciples' spiritual sight in faith is cured. But if you remember, back in Mark chapter 8, it's cured through a progressive work of Christ. Jesus applies a healing balm and a healing touch. The man begins to see, but he sees blurly. He says that the people look like trees walking around. He sees, but he doesn't yet see. You see? And then... Jesus touches again, and he begins to see, and then he sees clearly. What's happening in these chapters, and between Mark chapter 8 and here to Mark chapter 10, is the disciples see, but they don't yet see. They see blurly. And Jesus is continually touching them. He's continually leading them. And they're coming to understand all the more. He touches, he leads, he reveals himself. He speaks of his person and his work and he teaches them and their sight is slowly being restored after much blurry sightedness. The Lord is sure to complete the work that he has begun in them. And that's one of my most precious Promises of the Lord. He is going to complete the work. The miracle is complete in the Christ, even if our experience of him takes a while to see. By the time we get to the end of our count today, it's Bartimaeus's faith that is the most clear-sighted of any who have been following after Jesus. The Spirit has inspired Mark to record this account and the gospel of Jesus, and we're essentially being told that we, with the disciples, are spiritually blind. This is the, the one of the most important things that we can learn from this, script, this passage of Scripture. We are those who are spiritually blind. We are those who have walked in darkness. and And more Uh, And the more our eyes are set on the things of this world, we've seen this in recent weeks. The more our eyes are set on the things of the world, the more we grasp for power, the more we grasp for approval or comfort or control, the more distracted we are by the light of the world than the light that has come into the world. And what we begin to recognize as we see Jesus is that what we thought was the light of this world, power and approval and comfort and control, are actually darkness. I would encourage you this morning to humble yourself before a blind beggar. We're being, we're, we're being handed him by the Holy Spirit in this passage. Humble yourself. Let Bartimaeus lead you this morning. Let the Holy Spirit and the word escort you to Jesus that you might hear him and see him with faith. So we're going to look. We're going to see and pay attention to the word this morning. Right at the beginning of our passage, we see in verse 46, they came to Jericho. He was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. And it's there that they encounter Bartimaeus. We remember that Jesus and his disciples are on their journey to worship at the Passover festival in Jerusalem in the midst of the congregation of Israel. And, and this is one of my favorite words. It's an often neglected word, the word congregation. But let's remember that the, the, the scriptures speak of the congregation of the people of, of God, the gathering together of the people by God's call and in his institution and his instruction for worship, the people gather together. And this is what Jesus is doing. He affirms this is good by himself participating in this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship along the way as the pilgrims are converging on the city. The people from their scattered places are coming in as all these roads are leading up to Jerusalem. There's a growing crowd made up of both old and new disciples. And they are those who are instructed There are those who have been healed. There are those who have been blessed. By the time we get to Jericho, the crowd has swelled. He was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, we're told. Jerusalem is 20 miles and about uh, away and about a half a mile down. Uh, 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 Jerusalem is about a half a mile up from Jericho. They're nearing the end of the journey. Surely the Psalms of Ascent... We spent time in that this past summer, right? Paying attention to the psalm of ascents. This is when you sing them on the way up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. The pilgrims sang along the journey and the, the singing is getting louder as the crowd is getting bigger and the anticipation is coming. Jericho is the last stop on the journey for Jesus on the way to Jerusalem until he's essentially in the suburbs of Jerusalem, there in Bethany next week. and there's this gathering of pilgrims that gather in Jericho. it's actually believed that Jericho is the oldest city inhabited in the world. Now, Jericho, it's not to be confused with the Jericho where, you know, where the walls came tumbling down, right? This is a different Jericho, named probably after that one at some point, And it's been inhabited probably longer than any other city on earth. And there's a good reason for that, because Jericho is a wonderful oasis. It's an incredible place to stop in the midst of a dry land. And it's quite natural that a crowd would be gathered there in Jericho, exhausted from the journey so far, and now refreshed to go to worship. And of all the people in this crowd of pilgrims, Mark draws our attention to the least likely person in the whole of the crowd, a man who had become just a fixture of the city, surely taking advantage of the oasis and all the people who would come there. And he came there to collect alms, begging from the pilgrims who passed him by. And Mark draws our attention to this story. Because in this story, we have a blind man who sees. And let me tell you right now, people, this blind man sees way before Jesus gives him his sight. Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, son of Timaeus. It would seem that perhaps he was known to the early church. Why why does Mark name this guy and not all the others? Perhaps it's because his name was familiar. So Mark throws it out there. Perhaps it would explain why he specifically is named in this account. Because he, perhaps following his blindness, was able to travel and make known the word. We're told at the end of our passage that he follows after Jesus. He becomes amidst the throng of disciples following after him. Where, where the rich young man walked away, Bartimaeus follows. Compare Bartimaeus to that unnamed failure of a disciple, the failure at following after Christ, but rather to go back into the darkness of the riches of this world. Back in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it seems that that rich young man was the most likely candidate, an easy recruit, Well-suited, a valuable addition to the band of disciples. He's more than just rich and well-established in the community. He also presented himself as quite religious, diligent to keep the law of God. And Jesus doesn't argue with him about that. The rich man, young man, came with self-righteousness. And he left in darkness. But we have Bartimaeus. And how does he come? Jesus presents this even in parables. He comes with a cry for mercy. Have mercy on me, O son of David. Only Bartimaeus would ultimately follow after Jesus. And let me tell you, it's because the only way to follow after Jesus is to cry out to him for mercy. The only means of being associated with Jesus is grace. This morning, I want to draw our attention to three specific things that we can learn from Bartimaeus. Pastor and commentator Kent Hughes proved helpful to me this week in observing that this man actually perceives three things, at least, that we could learn from him. He notes that Bartimaeus perceived, first of all, he was pitifully aware of his condition. Bartimaeus was pitifully aware of his condition. Look at verse 47 with me. When, that is, Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth that had this whole crowd around him walking his way through Jerusalem, or Jericho, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on many. Many rebuked him Telling him to be silent, but he cry out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Friends, there is one thing that a blind man can see. And he sees it every single day of his life. There's one thing that he perceives and he's aware of every single waking moment. He knows he's blind. He knows it in his heart and soul. He's always aware of his need. It was easy for this man to know his need for the mercy of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. But This is exactly the opposite of what is true of the spiritually blind, isn't it? The one thing that the spiritually blind cannot see is their need for healing. We've seen that over and over again in recent chapters. And really, the rich young ruler is is one of the, the best, Samples of this. He has no idea that he's blind. He has no idea of his real need for mercy. He thinks he has something. Everybody else who watched the scenario thought he had something. This blind man, he can see, and he can become a tutor for us. By watching him, we can come to better perceive our own spiritual condition. Secondly, he has penetrating insight into the person of Christ. You see, this man knows that he's blind, but he also knows the Christ, the light of the world. Look at verse 47 again. What does he cry out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, people rebuked him, told him to be silent, blind man, beggar. What do you have to contribute? But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This is no small statement. It is no small confession that Bartimaeus makes on this day, it's the closest thing that we have to a genuine confession that Jesus is Christ since the confession of Peter. And we make a really big deal of that one, right? And here we have Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, making the same confession. You're the son of David. You're the anointed one. Son of David. It's more than a statement of Jesus's ancestry. It's an acknowledgment of his anointing. It's a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One in the line of David. It's, it's one thing to admit that some guy has a particularly interesting distant grandfather, right? It's another thing to confess that the man occupies a seat, fulfills a role, stands in a place of a long-awaited king. That is the confession of Bartimaeus when he says, "Son." of David. Jesus is that son of David. And it's the son of David that's been prophesied, held out before them in the scriptures that this man can't read with his eyes, but he's heard with his ears and he's given attention to. And when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is now in his city, where he begs, he cries out because he knows this is the one. No one else has made such a bold confession apart from Peter. Back in chapter 8, just after the healing of another blind man. Third, he has amazing, passionate persistence. Have mercy on me. He doesn't just say, have mercy on me, twice. You see what it says? But he cried out all the more. Stop it with your religious zeal, this passion that you have. Take your seat blind beggar. He cries out all the more. He knows his need, and he knows the Christ. And when you know the depth of your need, and you know the greatness of his glory, you cry out with a persistent cry. And the substance of the cry is not, yes, I've kept all of your law. I think I would be a wonderful recruit to your band of disciples. The genuine cry of a person who sees the glory of God and the need that they have is have mercy on me. It was a repeated cry. I mean, what else could he do? But faith compelled him to cry out for mercy. He cried out for mercy rather than entitled elevation. How else can you explain what James and John did when they went with their request in the previous passage? They first asked Jesus to do whatever they would ask him to do. And Jesus says, well, what would you have me do? They expected Jesus to grant their request because they thought themselves entitled to some grace from him. Do whatever we say, they said. Why would they say that? Because they thought that they deserved, they had an entitlement to some grace gift from Jesus. But that's not how grace works. There is no entitlement to grace. There is simply the cry for mercy. Grace is received as a cry of the needy to the grace giver for unmerited mercy. It's only as recipients of mercy that we could ever be entitled to the promises of God. And I love that. I love that idea. That that because God has made promise, because God has announced grace, so much so that we have a technical word for it, we call it gospel, good news. Because he's announced promise, we now are entitled to grace as a people begging for mercy, have heard word of mercy and now can come boldly. When Bartimaeus comes, he comes with a persistent enthusiasm, a cry for mercy. On New Year's Eve, Sandy asked me, my wife, uh, what, what one piece of advice have you received this year that was particularly valuable? What's something you've learned, some bit of wisdom? And I answered that in the midst of the variety of circumstances, trials, exhaustion of this last year, and I keep saying this last year, but let's be honest, it's longer than that, right? I've, I've learned how to more quickly cry out to the Lord for mercy. And I'll tell you, that one little thing has been Sustaining a link of faith to grace. More quickly, oh, oh Lord, have mercy. I don't even know, at most times, I know the shape when I cry it out, the substance of the mercy that I'm I'm hoping for. I wouldn't necessarily say I have a design in my mind of what relief might look like. I just know in this moment Something is broken. Something is lost. We need the grace and kindness of Jesus to intervene. We need the Son of David, the Messiah, the Savior, the King and Redeemer to come. And that's all that the cry for mercy is. Lord, have mercy. Come. We know who we need, and it's you. Be the King and Redeemer in our midst that we know that you are. I know that at this point I run the risk of, of sounding redundant, but I'm moved by this passage this week over and over again. I even had a hard time sort of studying the passage because I was so distracted that this passage, this account of this event, tutor, that we would be tutored in the way of faith, escorted by Jesus in our pitiful need for mercy by a blind man. What a kindness that the the Spirit would give us this man to tutor us in faith. To sort of ask us, will you you lay down your rich young rulerness? Will you you lay down whatever you think would privilege you and entitle you to grace? You would be better, Jeremiah, to be a, a blind man a beggar stuck in Jericho, probably escorted there as a sweet spot to beg and let that man escort you to Jesus. Do you know your need, your desperate need for Jesus? Do you rightly esteem that Jesus is the only king and the only redeemer and knowing your need And seeing the Savior by faith, do you cry out and take hold of mercy, redemption with the cry to mercy? What do you want? Jesus says, what do you want? Now there's a question for you. What do I want? I'm a blind beggar. Say it. Say it. If you want mercy, when I hear you say what you come to me for on this day, James and John were asked the same question, and they answer. And the motivation of their heart proves that they are not there to cry out for the mercy of Jesus. They cry out entitlement. But what Bartimaeus comes to Jesus with is need. And he pleaded for mercy. I want to see. I want you to heal my blindness. Jesus' response Your faith has healed you. I want to listen to that for a moment. I want to hear, see, and understand what in the world Jesus means when he says, your faith has healed you. Well, I'll tell you what he means here in just one second, in the next verse. He sees. That's what he means. He cried out for mercy in faith, and now he sees. But Bartimaeus had no power to heal himself. I mean, if he had power to heal himself, well, wouldn't wouldn't he just a long time ago muster up enough faith and belief in God? I mean, he believed in God sitting there on the roadside, didn't he? Didn't he know his, his Savior, his Master in the Scriptures? But he didn't have any power to heal himself there with his faith as a beggar in, Jeru- in Jericho. If faith, were the power to heal Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus would have leveraged his faith to heal himself a long time ago. In Mark, we've seen clearly that faith confesses. Faith is not a work inside of ourselves that we do to cause something. But we have seen that faith confesses One thing about ourselves and two things about Jesus. The one thing about ourselves that faith confesses is our need. Bartimaeus is such a clear example of this confession. Bartimaeus, in the cry for mercy, confesses, I have a need that only the master can meet. I have no hope in and of myself. My faith tells me that my faith can't heal me in and of itself. And so my faith cries out for mercy. And then faith confesses two things about Jesus. First, faith confesses that Jesus is able. And we've seen this in miracle after miracle. Jesus even tutors people who come to him, wondering if he'll give them attention And he tutors them in knowing, in the confession, you are able. It confesses, faith confesses Jesus is Lord. He's King, he's Redeemer, he's the Son of David, he's the Messiah, and nothing is impossible with God. That's the first confession of faith about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He's able. And the second confession of faith is that Jesus is good and wise. And you're not. It's the, why the cry is, "Lord, have mercy." Lord, have mercy. It confesses that Jesus is good and wise; that the Lord works according to His perfect wisdom for the good of those who draw near to them to Him in their need. In Hebrews chapter eleven, verse six, we have this twin confession, all compounded into one verse. It's a great verse to write in the margin of your Bible right here in this passage. Faith in Hebrews 11:6 says this, "And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him." Do you see the twin confession about who Jesus is, that he exists? That he is the Lord God. And if he's the Lord God, he's able. And that he rewards, that is to say, that he is for and loves and has mercy upon and keeps those who belong to him. He is for his people. He is good and generous and gracious in disposition to his people who draw near to him faith then is not the actual instrument of Bartimaeus's healing but it is the spiritual means by which Bartimaeus takes hold of the power and grace of the Lord the Lord's the healer and faith has healed him because it has brought him to the healer, the one who is able and the one who is good. Let me give you the illustration. Let's say you're driving a car in a, down the road on just the edge of town. You notice ahead of you there's a jog about a half block ahead, and all of a sudden the, dro- the jogger drops to the ground. And you speed up to check on what's going on, and when you pull up you realize he's having some sort of heart attack or some serious condition. And you remember that there's a a hospital just a half a mile down the road. So you quickly help him into your vehicle and you bring him to the ER. The next week you get a call from the man. And you're so thankful because you weren't sure what happened to him after he was pulled out of your car by the paramedics who came out to get him. And when he calls you, he says, thank you so much. You saved my life. I mean, it's not really technically true, is it? All you did was drive him to the doctor. You didn't save his life. There's really nothing you could have done for the man except for maybe perform CPR to preserve his life for a little while. And I'm just wondering, are some of the nurses in the room saying, don't put him in the car, call the ambulance. All right, I'm not sure what to do. Just work with the illustration for a moment, okay? But it was good to get the guy help. You couldn't save his life. But you see, you performed the role of faith. Faith brings us to trust in the Lord, our help in time of need. It is grace and mercy of the Lord that actually heals, just like it's the doctors and the nurses who saved his life. But faith brings us to the Savior. So what if you go to the Lord with your need, but you've not experienced the help that you've cried out for? You've cried Lord, have mercy. And you've been honest. You've been bold to say, and and I want to tell you what the need is, what I long for, Jesus. When my cry for mercy, this is what I cry. Let me first of all affirm that your faith has taken you to the right place. You are in the right place to trust in the Lord. Continue with Bartimaeus to cry out. He didn't cry once. He was even prevented by the voices of those around him. And I wonder how long would he cry before he just decided Jesus isn't going to listen. But he didn't. He persisted. You're in the right place to cry out to the Lord for mercy. You are right to join with Bartimaeus in his cry. But second, let us remember the second essence of our trust in the Lord. To trust, to have faith, It's to believe that the Lord is able, that he is Lord, and to trust that he is wise and good. If we were wise and good, if we were so powerful in our faith, we would have healed ourselves a long time ago. And so whatever we say, when we cry, we say whatever He gives in our cry for mercy, whether it is healing or comfort or peace or patience, we lean not on our own understanding, but we follow after... Who is He again? Lord. Faith, first of all, confesses that He exists. That He is God. We follow after the Lord on the way in which He would have us Walk And friends, that's exactly what Bartimaeus did. At the end of our passage, that's exactly what he did. He cried out. He received from the Lord what his grace had for him, sight. And he followed after the Lord. I would suggest to you that what we can see not only in this passage but throughout the Gospel of Mark is that the purpose of Christ's miraculous work in our lives, is discipleship. That we would follow after the Christ. Over and over again, Jesus is showing that healing is not the ultimate end of his ministry. The ultimate end of his ministry is the cross and resurrection and gathering a small band of blurry-eyed spiritual seers to go with news of life in the Christ. It's one of the things that's difficult about preaching the way that we do. We walk slowly and carefully, one passage at a time, through the book of the Scriptures. And sometimes we can forget that there is a hole to this thing. And that if we were to pay attention to the book of Mark, it's 16 chapters, we can see that the bulk of those chapters are in the real miracle. The center of his ministry. He confessed it just last week. Why has the Son of Man come? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Faith is a simple confession. It makes a simple cry. It's a cry of the needy for mercy. It's a cry out for the gospel of the one who would take his place on the cross. In our place for our sin, so that we would no longer have the pain of death hanging over us for our sin, but in Christ, we would have the life that he secured for us in his resurrection. This is our cry for mercy. Do we see ourselves in this story? Do we see our need for Christ? Can we sit down with Bartimaeus on the road and cry out? We've noted that a blind man is always has his need before him. If there's one thing about which he's aware, it's that he does not see. It's not the case for the spiritually blind. We are those who stumble around in our arrogance and our pride and our sin and our rebellion. And we don't know what's wrong with ourselves. We we have a sense that there's something wrong, but surely it couldn't be me. We're blind in our darkness. If you have, friends, this morning, if you have any perception at all of your spiritual blindness, if you have any sense of your sinful brokenness, this awareness itself is a grace from God. Don't pass it up. If you have any sense of your need for Christ, this morning is the moment to say, to cry out, for mercy. Join Bartimaeus. Your awareness of your need is grace to you this morning. It's a a seedling gift of faith to be exercised with a cry for mercy. Cry out to Jesus, who has given you his life, that you would have life in him. For everyone here, whatever our trouble is, whatever ails you, and friends, I think of D.L. Moody. He was, he was asked what, what maybe his, his greatest trial is in life, what his greatest enemy or opposition has been, and he said, oh, it's me. It's me. I'm my greatest enemy and I'm my greatest opposition, my greatest impediment to spiritual progress. Whatever our trouble is, and perhaps the trouble is you, no matter the suffering or the circumstance, it is right and good that you would cry out to the Lord. It's right and good that you would join the persistent cry of the people of God throughout all time, throughout all of history, to cry out to the Lord for mercy. Friends, there is a day in which that cry will cease, and the cry will simply become holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. But until that day, our cry is mercy, mercy, mercy. Lord have mercy on us. I know the Lord. You are God and so are you are able and I know you're wise and you love your people. We don't know in this particular moment if this suffering is going to be relieved. We don't know if this sickness will be healed, but we'll ask. We'll cry out for mercy. We don't know. We don't know much about really anything that's going on in our circumstances, but we know that the Lord is the Christ. He's the son of David. And he is the one to whom we cry for mercy. And that he will ransom, he will restore. and That is all that is needed. And that's all that our faith cries out for. I'm reminded as we close of Psalm 118, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Heavenly Father, This is the cry of faith, the cry for mercy that stands on thanksgiving. Your scriptures themselves tutor us to to offer our petitions before the Lord with thanksgiving. Because your steadfast love endures forever. And I could have quoted three other places in that same song where that same word is repeated. We give thanks to the Lord. Right there in the midst of our cry for mercy is a cry that stands on the thanksgiving that, Lord, not the hope that someday you would do something, but this morning we remember the work, our redemption is done. We remember the Christ. We aren't in Jericho awaiting another 20-mile journey in a few more days. But we can look back, see and remember the cross, the sacrifice, the ransom, the resurrection, the spirit, the word increasing and multiplying and working its way over the course of two millennia to our ears and into our hearts. And so it is with a fulfilled Thanksgiving that we continue to cry out for mercy. Lord, I pray that your mercy would be upon us. The person in this room who has held on to their pride. Some sense that they could fix themselves. I pray that you would work in that place to humble and to bring out about a confession of faith. I cry out to you for mercy, for forgiveness of sin, for restoration and hope in the moment and the circumstance, a willingness to cry out to their God. For everyone here that we would be buoyed in our faith, who would be strengthened and encouraged, that know that your spirit is present. Your work is ongoing in the midst of your people by your word and spirit. Lord, we trust you for these things. In your great name, in the name of Jesus, we cry out for mercy with thanksgiving. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.